If you would, this morning, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're going to start out this morning. Well, no one likes suffering. No one in their right mind would ask for suffering. No one hopes for more suffering after you've gone through a period of suffering. Instead, Paul calls for his listeners to share in the suffering and to share for a distinct purpose. And before we look at the purpose for sharing in the suffering, let's observe a couple words of exhortation from Paul that I think applies to all of us. And uh, let me just say that in our minds there are kind of various and asunder types of suffering that many of us may go through. Sometimes it's a physical suffering where there's a sickness or an illness or a cancer. And uh, once again, none of us would ask for that. Sometimes it's an emotional suffering where it's, you know, the coworker is a, a not really not a real easy person to get along with, or the the authority in your life is not a person that is godly, or you know doesn't really encourage you to to do the job in a, in a way that is easy or pleasing to to the person requiring the work to be done. And then there's the kind of suffering that we see in Scripture, where people are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And this is the kind of suffering I think that this word directly uh, applies is applied to. But also I think its application is in a lot of different areas. But there are some things that Paul really drives out in Timothy that he didn't bring out in 1 Timothy that he really punches out right here that I think applies to all of us. And so, uh, and I think as we talk about this whole idea in the Second Timothy of doing ministry in the culture that we live in, practical ministry in the culture that we live in, uh, it's going to start addressing these things as we go forward here. So uh, if you would... Let's just bow before the Lord in prayer just for a moment, ask His blessing on the Word. And uh, can I just challenge you as we pray? Pray personally. Don't just listen to me. Let's, 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 in a way, let's ask God to apply to our hearts. You know, it's so easy to come to church, open the Bible, listen to what the preacher says, shut the, shut the book and go home and life is normal. But if we're really going to be honest with ourselves, we're talking about doing practical ministry. And a lot of us haven't taken that step yet. A lot of us are waiting for someone else to do it. You know, we talked about that in Sunday school a little bit. We talked about the idea of mentoring and getting involved and passing the baton. And we wonder why churches are closing. Some churches are closing because the older has not mentored and coached and taught and discipled the younger. Sometimes the younger don't want to learn it. We could add all kinds of reasons. But there's a shortfall of people who have a desire to serve God through ministry. It's always easy for someone else to do it. It's always easier for someone else to get involved than you. Because you're busy and God understands that. And let me just say as I'm pointing the finger, i got a couple coming back. So I'm not preaching at you. Uh, I'm saying that we all struggle with this. And so if you would, let's pray together and just ask God to work here. Lord Jesus, as we come before you right now, we ask God that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, as we start this aspect of doing ministry, practical ministry in the culture that we live in, Lord, every generation struggles with how to get involved and how to reach their generation and how to make an impact for the cause of the gospel. But Lord, I pray that as we read this timeless word from Paul to Timothy, Lord, that we would be willing to apply it to our own hearts and our own lives. So God, would you speak to us this morning? Would you uh, teach us those things that you'd have for us to learn 
that we may be more faithful to what you've called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Timothy, I want to read this morning from chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, and then we'll start looking at a couple of these exhortations that Paul started off with. In verse 8, from the Christian Standard, it says, So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or me as prisoner. Instead, share in the suffering for the gospel. Relying on the power of God, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a herald, apostle, and a teacher. And that is why I suffered these things. But I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Well, there's a couple things that he starts off with right away in the beginning of this passage. And first of all, he says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You know, that's a powerful statement. What is it that we are ashamed of? You know, a lot of people are ashamed of a lot of things. Our kids may do something crazier, just kind of off the wall, and we say, man, that really, I'm, I'm ashamed that he did that. And we kind of go to bat for our kids, and we say, well, I, I can't believe they did that, and so forth. That causes a type of shame. And then there's the kind of shame of when we do something dumb ourselves, and we say, man, I don't know why I did it. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why, you know, I don't know why I stole that thing. I don't know why I said that about so-and-so. I don't know why. And we feel the shame of the, and the conviction of the Spirit when we do those things. But he's not saying don't be ashamed about your actions. Don't be ashamed about this. He said don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And that's an amazing thing to say. And I say this often as I preach. He wouldn't say it unless there was a need to say it, right? Because by the very fact that he says it, it presupposes that fact that some people were ashamed. And so we have to look at the, the possibility that there are those within their ranks that were ashamed of what and who Jesus Christ was. And did. So if we look at Philippians chapter 2, we see the testimony of what our Lord Jesus Christ was. In Philippians chapter 2, we see in verse 5, it says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself in becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. What was the testimony of our Lord? He was willing to lay aside the splendor of heaven to take on the humanity of flesh and to come as a man. So what does that really mean? It means he hungered just like you and I do. It means that he thirsted just like you and I do. He wept just like you and I do. He took on the limitations of flesh so that he could experience life as a man, yet without sin. The testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that he was willing to leave the splendor of heaven to come down to the earth of man or as a man, and to pay the sin sin debt of mankind because we had a debt we couldn't pay. And when you think about that, he says, don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of what Christ Jesus has done for us. So I would never be ashamed of what Jesus Christ did for us. A lot of people in Scripture said that too, and they denied him over and over again. You know, how do we show shame in the world that we live in? We're talking about doing practical ministry throughout this book, Well, practical ministry starts with not being ashamed of who you're trying to represent, right? So all of us have the idea that we serve a living Savior. We talk about that every Easter. 
but he's also alive the other 364 days, right? The bottom line is that he's still alive, he's still real, and we still need to encourage others to know him. But if we're ashamed of him, we'll never open our mouth. You know, I think every family has that one person you don't talk about because, well, they've done these dumb things. You just don't bring that person up. You just don't talk about that person. You just don't kind of, you know, just don't, don't, don't mention it because there's shame involved because of their actions. If we don't dare speak of Jesus Christ, what does that say of us? It says that we're ashamed of him. You know, it's, it's that subtle that, you know, you're having a conversation with another brother in Christ or another sister in Christ, and then an unbeliever comes up and you switch the conversation. Because we don't want to talk about that. You know, I don't think we're religious holy, holy rollers. Come on now. We don't want them to think that. They think we're crazy. Or you're reading something and someone comes up to you and, it's like, and you quickly put it away because you don't want to get into that because there's just two things in life you don't talk about, religion and politics. I agree with that. Don't talk about religion. Talk about a relationship and how it's changed your life. See, shame comes in deceitfully and subtly and it seems to permeate the entire conversation at times. It's the conversation that some of us don't really want to have because you just don't want to deal with it. And there's, if we're honest with ourselves, shame. He says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in 2 Timothy, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Paul says, don't be ashamed of my testimony. What was this testimony? It's an amazing thing to consider that Paul had an incredible testimony. Well, stick your finger there in 2 Timothy, but turn back to Acts chapter 9, if you would, just for a moment. I'm going to read a handful of verses here, and I'll read them quickly, but they're on the screen just in case uh, I'm going too fast for you, because I do that once in a while. My, you, I kid you not, there was, there were, yeah, you're all laughing. My wife is like, she's pulling the reins here, slow it down a little bit. Um, she used to do that when, her, when I was preaching younger. Now she knows she's like, I just don't pay attention to it. Um, no. Acts chapter 9. Listen to this just for a moment. It says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, in other words, he went and got special permission to find anybody who would claim to be a follower of Christ, man, woman, doesn't matter, so that they could bring them back and persecute them. And as he traveled, he was nearing Damascus, a light, verse 3, from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. And when he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am. Lord, he replied, get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. 
Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Stop right there. What was the testimony of Saul before God got a hold of his life? I mean, you talk about a testimony. You talk about somebody who was not on the same page as most of the followers of Christ. And can you imagine just for a moment why Ananias didn't want to necessarily go over to see Saul? Uh, Lord, are you, uh, are you, are you, do you really understand what you're asking me to do? This, this man that you're telling me to go to meet, he has authority from the chief priest to bring me back to Jerusalem and to destroy us. Yeah, go. Wow, what a testimony. He goes on here in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to make my name to, Gent- to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israels, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I mean, he, had, he was going to be building a testimony that, that God was going to be using for the rest of his life. I'm just thinking about it. I was looking at a, a website of a man who, who does a lot of extensive research, and he just put together in a, in a category list form of, of things of some of the sufferings of Paul. And let me just say this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we will get to a little bit later, it says in verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You'll suffer persecution if you don't practice being ashamed. If you're going to stand up for your faith, there are going to be those who don't understand. There are going to be those who don't agree. There are going to be those who say, why are you doing this? And there are going to be those who say, get away from me. Our own, our own governor of the state of New York said, if you're a conservative Christian, get out of our state. We don't want you. Who gives him that authority? If it's his opinion that we need to leave, it ought to be our opinion that we're going to stay and make an impact. Let's do something about it. Let's stand up. Because it's not going to be a national crusade across the United States that's going to get this world turned around. It's going to be life touching life, one person at a time. You notice that Jesus Christ didn't run out to the Colosseums. He didn't go to where the gladiators were fighting. He didn't go to where the where the, the entire Roman empires were gathering for the games and filled the stadiums. He impacted a handful of men. And that's how we're going to change the world that we live in. By not being ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ and by going into the day-to-day aspects of our life and letting our life touch another life. And he says, yes, all who desire to live godly will suffer some sort of persecution. And in 1 Peter 4.16 says that if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. He says if you are suffering shame because of what you believe, because of what you are standing for, he says, then let him glorify God because of it. Don't be ashamed. You know, before becoming a Christian, Paul caused others to suffer greatly. We see this in Acts chapter 7, verses 57 and 58. It says, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran to him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes and at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was not a good man. But God changed his life. God did something through him that would go on to affect many people for many years to come. Wow. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. 
Now Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. What was Saul doing? Causing more problems. Causing more havoc. Entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You see, the persecution didn't stop them. It made them go more on fire. It made them to just proclaim the word even louder. But it starts with opening your mouth. That was his testimony. That he was going about trying to destroy Christianity and it caused those around them who were not ashamed to even get more bold and more courageous. Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I believe that. It was my job, it was my destiny to do something that was contrary to the word of God. Good man? Wow, not a guy I'd want to hang out with. We're not going out for wings Friday night. Galatians 1 says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That was his testimony, that he tried to destroy the church. Galatians 1.23 says, But they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faithless once he tried to destroy. What a testimony. Philippians 3.6 Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, he said, that's who I was, past tense. And now 1 Timothy 1.13, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But because of what God did in his life, remember back in Acts 9.15-16, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. God gave him a testimony. And he says, don't be ashamed of it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12, he says, We were perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. He says, Listen, every day is another opportunity to stand up. And yes, you may suffer persecution for it. You may have to go through some difficult times because of it. In 2 Corinthians 4, I won't go into all of it, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God may, may, uh, may be of God and not of us. We were hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We were perplexed, but not in despair. Oh, I love it. He just goes on and on. And then he gets back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself I will not boast, except for my infirmities. We could go on and on and on. There are so many verses that talk about who Paul was and what Jesus Christ did in his life. He was a changed man. And because of that, he had a testimony. You see, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have a testimony. You have something that God has done in and through your life that's yours. It's your story. It's what God has done for you. What are you doing with it? Are you willing to share that? Are you willing to give it away? What God has given you, are you willing to give it away? He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony that you have. 
So many of us are ashamed. We turn the conversation. We say nothing. We invite nobody. There's not a whole lot of some preachers on TV that I care for. But one man said this. He said, if you ain't got enough guts to share your faith, at least invite him to the church so I can tell him. I agree with him. If you're not going to do it, at least invite him so I can tell him. Let's have some boldness. Let's have some courage in our lives. And if you've got a testimony, if God has done something in your life, don't be ashamed of it. That's what he's saying here. See, you want to have practical ministry in the culture that we live? It starts with not being ashamed of the gospel. It starts with us not shutting our mouths. It starts with us talking to our neighbors, to the sphere of influence that God gives us. That's where it starts. This idea in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 8, in the middle of it, it says, Share in the suffering for the gospel. Share in the suffering. That's an interesting phrase in the original language. It, it literally has this idea. To suffer hardship together. To suffer hardship together. What's that imply? It has the idea that you're not in it alone. It's not just you. It's not just your spouse. It's not just your kid. It's not us as a bunch of individuals doing what God has called us to do, though that is important and though you should be doing it. But in this phrase, it's the idea of suffering hardship together. In other words, all of us are in this together. We've asked this and give this illustration a thousand times over the last 25 years that I can remember. I ask it again. What would happen to the walls of this church, just this one local church, if every one of us would beg God for one? Not 21, not 101, not even five. What would happen to this local assembly if all of us would say, God, would you give me one person that I can have some impact on? One person that I can share my faith with? One person that I, you would use me to bring to you, Lord? What would happen to the chairs in this auditorium? Just for one. Oh, yes. It starts with not being ashamed. It starts with saying, God, give me the boldness that in Acts 180 said you already have. It starts with God saying, or saying, God, help me overcome my fear, which he's already given you in 2 Timothy 7. I'm not giving you the spirit of fear, but of love and power of sound mind. But even before all that, it starts with your heart. It starts with a desire. It starts with, God, would you use me? I'm willing. You see, it's, I've said this a thousand times. God's Word has said it a thousand times. It's not about your talents or your abilities or your skills or the lack thereof. That has literally almost nothing to do with it. People for years have said, well, Pastor, you're just really outgoing. You can talk to anybody. Well, duh, any, a lot of people can. That's not a skill. It just happens to be i got a big mouth and I can just talk to everybody. It's not, it is part of my personality, but it's not, it's not because I'm good at it. I just sometimes don't know how to shut up. The bottom line is, Second Chronicles 16 says, For the eyes of God run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in him whose heart is perfect towards him. God says, I am looking for people all across the world. 
people that I can show myself strong through. People, and that word perfect doesn't mean perfect sinlessness. It literally means mature. So he says, I'm looking for mature people, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, that I can use who will be mature enough to let me work through them. You know what that says to me? You know what it says to you? You don't have to be a good speaker. You don't have to know all the things of the Bible. You don't have to go to Jerusalem Baptist Bible College before you can be used. If you've got a story, and you have a testimony, and you're willing to let God use you, God says, I'll work through that person. So you don't have to be good at it. You don't have to have any talents. You don't have to have any skills. What you really need to have is just availability. And in this world, that's almost the greatest commodity we have, is our time. More than money, more than skills, more than anything, our time is what God wants. If you'll give him time, he'll do great and incredible things through you. But as long as we're ashamed and not willing to open our mouth, it kind of stops right there. But he doesn't stop there. He tells us the why. Why must we go through these hardships together? Why must we suffer these things? Why do we have to go through this together? He gives us the why. And I think there's two things. For the gospel. That's the first thing we see in our text. He says, share in the suffering for the gospel. For the gospel. What is the gospel? The fact that Jesus Christ came, he died, was buried, and that he rose again. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us the gospel is? He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. According to the scriptures, that's the gospel. That's the message this world needs to hear. It's the message our neighbors need to hear. It's the, it's the message that our co-workers need to hear. It's the message that our relatives need to hear. It's the message that has changed our life. And it's the message that the whole world needs to hear. Amen? So the first reason is for the gospel. And then he says how, once again, the why, um, in our text, relying on the gospel on the power of God. Once again, so he says, it's not about me. It's not about what I think is important. It's not about you know, me having a skill set that says, hey, you get, or a great memory that just says, oh, you can just remember everything to say. No, it has nothing to do with it. If we are relying on God and His Holy Spirit that indwells us as His children, He'll take care of the rest. Unless we say no. If we're going to do it in our own power, we'll fail. If we're going to do it in our own ability, we will fail. But if you do it in His, He says you rely on the power of God. And then He gives us the why. Or the, he gives us the why, He gives us the how. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. I mean, just take this line by line. This is not like hard stuff to understand. This is really simple, right? Line by line. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. So when you were saved, you were also called. There you go. You were saved and called. You don't have to wait for any mysterious, you know, boom, you know, some mysterious, boom, touch. You're called. Pretty simple, huh? 
Let's not overcomplicate this. He saved you and called you to live this life that you're not to be ashamed of. And then he says, <laughs> not according to our own works. You see, because we say all the time, it's not about me. It's all about him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness, which I have done. Why? Because all these things, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? God's word makes it clear. It's not about you. It never will be. It can't be about you. That's why he says, relying on the power of God, he has saved us and calls with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace. He has a purpose. He has a purpose for your life. Think about that. It's not just, oh, well, I'm going to heaven now. Pasco, proceed in. It's more than that. It's a relationship that only grows deeper and stronger in time. Amen? According to his own purpose, his own grace, he saves us. And he says, well, it's given to us as believers before time began, verse 9. He has saved us and called us for the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Wow, what a gift. What a gift. There is no greater gift. Wow. Going on verse 10, I love this verse. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Just think about that concept right there just for a minute with me. He has brought light and life to light. Think, think about that. He brought life and immortality to life. To light. Excuse me. In other words, he made known to you. Can you imagine watching a murder mystery? Got these detectives that are out there, they're running around everywhere and they're getting bits and pieces of information. You know, this person said this and it helped, you know, put this piece of the puzzle of the, of the mystery here. And this person over here gave us this little bit of information and it kind of put another piece of the puzzle together and figuring out who did this crime. And then over here, <coughs> someone else gives a little piece <coughs> and then it just kind of stalls. A couple months pass and they're trying to figure out who did this crime, who did. We don't know. We have this piece and this piece and this piece. And now we're kind of stalled out. And then all of a sudden someone else comes along and they have a conversation and they give you another little nugget. And all of a sudden that last piece of the picture is put down into the puzzle. And all it makes it clear. That's what Jesus did. It says that he brought life and immortality to light. He says for the first time these people are understanding what it means to have life and what it means to have immortality. You, you see, we're all going to live forever. Did you know that? Did you know that? Did, did you know that, really? You're all going to live forever. Not here on earth, but you're going to live forever. But the problem is, not everyone's going to live forever in heaven. 
Some will live forever in hell. And he says, I came that you might understand what life and immortality is in Jesus Christ. So that you can truly live. Made evident through the appearing. Then he goes on, verse 11. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. Three things he says, I'm three areas, and really they're kind of diverse. A herald, one who proclaims the gospel. He said, when Jesus Christ changed my life, Acts 9, and he converted to Christianity, he said, I became a herald. Can I ask this question? I don't mean to be a jerk. But have you ever been a herald of Jesus Christ? Have you ever just totally just wanted to proclaim what Christ had done for you? I mean, I promise you, if you were unsaved, and all of a sudden you inherited the lottery because, you know, it's $275 trillion and you had the number, the whole world would know it. Your whole sphere of influence. Your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Man, everyone would know it. You'd herald that. You'd try to hide it, but you can't. But you're going to talk about it, and it's going to come out, and everyone's going to know. We have a gift, a treasure, so far greater than that. And we literally say nothing. So as I point to you, I got at least one, two, three fingers coming back. So I'm not preaching at you. I'm just reminded and convicted when I look at the word that we got to do a better job. We have to do a better job. Amen? He says, I'm a herald. Then he says, I'm an apostle, one who walked with Jesus. He got to know the heart of Jesus. Paul didn't have all the words that we've got, but we've got a book that allows us to know and to walk with Jesus. Amen? Are you in it? Men, I'm going to pick on you for a minute as I do about every three, four months. Are you reading? Some of you men have said, oh, I listen to God's word, I pray a lot as I'm going. I didn't ask if you prayed a lot. And then ask if you're listening to it online and listening to messages. I'm asking, are you reading? Because there's no shortcut to this. You can't be godly and not read. You can't. This is the heart of God, right? This is what helps us know Him. This is what helps us draw close to Him. I mean, this is not the book you read once and throw it on the shelf and pick it up again in about seven years when somebody asks you a question. This is the book that never we never put down. He says, I'm an apostle. He walked with Jesus, and we can walk with Jesus. I don't believe there's apostles today. That's my opinion. Apostles are those who walked with Jesus during his life. A lot of people call themselves apostles today. And then there's... He says, I'm a teacher. You know what a teacher is? One who imparts knowledge. 
Not necessarily always wisdom, but knowledge. Because there's a lot of people who have knowledge that don't have wisdom. I was reading a book one time, and the book talked about the wisdom of God. And the illustration that it was used was, here's two doctors. Great long in their introduction, how they go to school and they learn all the intricacies of the human body, you know, and the miles of arteries and veins and blood flow and the differences between the blood and you know different things and all, and all this knowledge, 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 knowledge. But only one of the doctors was wise. See, one used knowledge to perform abortions. The other one used knowledge to save life. Which one was wise? See, a teacher imparts knowledge, but what you do with it is what can make you wise or not. Paul says, my life changed when I trusted Christ. When Jesus impacted my life, it changed. Everything changed. In verse 12, he says, and this, that is why I suffer for these things. He goes, these things that I go through? Think about what Paul went through. Shipwreck. Stoning, beating, being left for dead, bitten once by a serpent, right? Sign me up, right? <laughs> Want to get going on that one? Now sign me up for that missionary trip. He says, this is why I suffer. I'm willing to go through it for the cause of Christ. And he says, I'm, once again, not ashamed. Why? Three things. Or, or three things he wants you to know. This I know. I'm not ashamed. I know who I believe in. And I'm persuaded. Isn't that awesome? Three things that Paul knew that we should know. I'm not ashamed. I know this. When I think of Paul living this out in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I believe it is. I didn't put it in my notes. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, then also to the Gentile. He says, I'm not ashamed. He says, this is why I suffer, and I know this. I'm not ashamed. Number two, I know who I believe in. Do you know who you believe in? It sounds sat 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 satirical. Is that a word? It's almost like, well, duh. But do you really know? Do you know? Do you know this God? I, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. My wife and I have been married for a little over 25 years. I know some of you have been married longer, some of you not as much. But I can promise you, if you would have asked me 25 years ago, probably 29 years ago when I met her, if I knew her, what do you think I would have said? Yeah. I know her. In God's providence, our name, last names were together in alphabetical seats that they put us in sections and God put us by each other. I mean, that's just of God. I mean, <laughs> got to know her. Dated her a little bit my freshman year, then she had a little, you know, misunderstanding in her brain and heart. And God had to deal with her to bring her back. Just saying. <laughs> no. Come back a junior year, started dating again, got married, the rest is history, so they say. But that first year of marriage, if you would have asked me if I know my wife, 
as any of you would say, you'd say, yes. But I can just tell you this. I know her far better now than I ever thought I knew her then. Far better now than even when I even began to think I knew her then. How many of you would agree with your spouses? Say, man, if I know now what I knew then, <laughs> no. She might not have come back and got to the right mind. I don't know. But here's the deal. Paul says, I know who I believe. I know this God. And I'm willing to suffer for him. I know whom I believed. I think of people like Job. <laughs> the one that he thought he knew. His wife. I want you to, and his friends. His three close friends that just love Jesus. Curse God and die. Job, this is all because of your sinfulness. Job, blah, 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 blah. Paul said, I know who I believe in. And because of it, look at the rest of the verse. I know whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. What was entrusted to Paul? Huh? This relationship with the gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel that changed his life, that he was so persuaded of this Jesus who died for him. He says, he's the one to keep me, protect me. So, what is it that we really want from a relationship of Jesus, with Jesus Christ? Is it just get out of help card? Pass, go, get $200, you know, like the game Monopoly, just, yeah, you know, here's your card, get out of jail, free card. Is that what we want? They pass on hell and life in heaven just, just to say we're saved? Is, is, that all, is, that, is that all that life is for? Hopefully that's not our opinion. But if it's not, what is different about our lives because we have him? There's a whole bunch of directions we can go with this right now. The one that jumps out of my mind is James 2. Faith without works is dead. It's non-existent. It's not there. It's poof, gone. It was never there. Faith without works is dead. So if I truly know Jesus Christ, I should have a desire to serve him and to walk with him and to love him and to grow in him. Right? But it's not going to happen as long as there's shamefulness in our life and we're not willing to talk about it. He starts this passage out. So don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. I mean, remember where we said where he was writing this from? A jailhouse in Rome? Jailhouse Inn and Suites? <laughs> I wouldn't choose to go there. But he's taken the circumstances that God allowed him to be in and to make the most of it for the glory of God. He says, this I know. I'm not ashamed. I know who I believe in, and I'm persuaded of that he's able to keep me. If we know those three things, there should be nothing we can't do for the cause of Christ. Right? There should be nothing we can't do. If, we, if we're convinced that we know him, we know his heart, we know his mind, 
we're walking with Him, fellowshipping with Him, praying with Him, talking with Him, and He's talking to us, we should be convinced that we can do anything that He asks us to do. So I'm not ashamed. I know who I believe in and am persuaded of His protection. And as we're going to see next week, it's not for Paul's sake. He's passing the baton off to Timothy. He says, be faithful to the gospel, to Jesus Christ, to our Heavenly Father. That's what matters. You want to do practical ministry in our culture? Don't be ashamed. Open your mouth and talk. I'm kind of that guy that, yeah, I'll ask anybody a question. I see a guy with a tattoo on his eyelid, I'll talk to him about it. See tattoos, I mean, I, I see some of the tattoos around their ears and on the back of this. they got to hurt, man. That's got to hurt. I'll talk to them. Why not, right? Because I find that most people that are different than ourselves, they want to talk to you. But sometimes we're too afraid to talk to them. People that are different, uh, what do we expect? People to be just like us? We only talk to people who are comfortable, whom we're comfortable with? I was talking to a brother this last week. <laughs> we get all critical about how other people do ministry. Because if we were doing it, we'd do it this way. But the problem is we're not doing it, but we're critical of how they're doing it. I think we ought to just take a step in the uncomfort zone. Go downtown. Say, man, I hate the city. <laughs> I don't like going down there. I'm uncomfortable. It scares me. Maybe where God wants to use you. Step out of your comfort zone. Just once. See what God might do with it. But you only do that if you're not ashamed. You know who you believe in. And you're persuaded that God is going to protect you until that day. What's that day? Well, there's probably a technical definition of that, the day of the Lord, whatever. But here's what I'm saying. Till, you're, till your number's called, God's got you. Let's just apply it that way. God's got you. Do you believe that? Time to take a step, folks. It's time. Let's pray.